Hey listeners, welcome back to General Education and Happy Thanksgiving. I'm your host, Sean Flannelly, and today we'll be focusing on an unlikely purveyor of mental health resources at USC, the Office of Religious and Spiritual Life. The center provides a series of programs promoting wellness and spiritual well-being. We'll be taking a brief look at two of these programs, followed by an in-depth discussion with Dean of Religious Life, Varun Soni, about why the Office of Religious Life has taken on this unexpected role. The Office of Religious and Spiritual Life hosts multiple meditation groups and yoga sessions aimed at promoting mindfulness and spirituality. However, the office also believes it's important to promote connection between students. They started hosting small gatherings called campfires a few semesters back in an attempt to bring students together and connect with one another. Daily Trojan Simran Sandhu reports. All over campus, students are holding campfires, but you won't find any crackling logs or floating embers here. Instead, students gather together and place their phones in the center of a circle. On each phone, a video of a campfire plays. The sights and sound of the flames blend together to create a full virtual fire around which the students are seated. Once they have created their campfire, students begin asking one another questions in the hopes of creating deeper connections. Campfires was initiated by the USC Office of Religious and Spiritual Life and is a movement to encourage friendship and community on campus. The office hosts campfire circles and campfire pop-up events, and have hosted about 20 in total since the series began. Circles contain six to eight students, while pop-ups may have as many as 60. The Office of Religious Life also provides instructions for students who wish to create their own campfires, and for clubs and groups who hope to foster community among their members, although the office is not aware of any student groups who have taken advantage of these instructions. I spoke with Dean of Religious Life, Varun Soni, about the movement and its origins. His hope is that the campfires will move people from acquaintances into deeper connections with one another. And essentially what campfires is, is a way for us just to bring people together in authentic and intimate community. A way for us to celebrate and explore what it means to be human. A way for us to have safe and vulnerable spaces to think about you know, who we are and what our lives mean. Uh, and a way for us to legitimize the importance of human connection. When you're sitting around a campfire with friends, you tend to have deep, honest, intimate conversations, and you tend to feel connected, and you tend to feel like you have a tribe and that you belong, and all those feelings are feelings that we want for our students. A campfire encourages intimacy, but allows for quiet introspection. Here's Senior Associate Dean of Religious Life, Reverend Jim Burklow, and Philosophy, Politics, and Law major, Senior Isaac Giles. The two worked together to found the campfires movement. I've just taken this smartphone, which is an instrument that separates people every bit as much as it brings them together, and I put on the campfire video, virtual campfire with uh, with crackling fire sounds video, and you and I are now having a campfire. So the phone has been repurposed into a means of having an eye-to-eye conversation. And then when we need to think for a minute before responding to each other, we can look down at the fire and reflect and then get back up to our connection. Campfires have been bringing people together in intimate settings for hundreds of thousands of years, and so we need it here on campus. Belonging and well-being are not a privilege, they're a right. And so 
the Office of Religious and Spiritual Life wanted to make a really intentional effort to create the kind of movement uh, that is where they are sort of the hub of belonging that then connects people to different experiences and different resources and other people on campus who are all sort of uh, focusing on how to create a culture of belonging and friendship and community and who all kind of agree that those things aren't just something that sort of comes alongside your education or something you look for after class. They're a right and they're really central to your success in any other uh, aspect of your life. Campfires is really meant to be a model um, that is both context specific, that works within any given community um, where students can tailor it to their own needs, but it is a model that can be scaled and replicated. Awareness of mental health issues has been rapidly increasing in the past few years on college campuses, especially at USC, where a string of tragedies has shocked the university. Dean Sony believes that the campfires movement will help to tackle one of the biggest mental health challenges that college students face today, loneliness. What I've noticed over the last 12 years is that every year our students seem to be getting lonelier. I never got the question in my first five years that I get almost every week on campus now, which is how do I make friends? And I think it's because now we're welcoming post-millennials, Generation Z, the first digitally native generation in human history, students who have spoken with their tongues, thumbs and not so much with their tongues, students who may have thousands of friends online when they get to campus but might struggle to make a human connection when they arrive. What we know is that we're all essentially tribal people. We need to have a tribe and a sense of belonging in order to us to feel like we're flourishing and thriving, in order to, for us to feel like we're connected with what it means to be human. And what, I'm, what I began to see is a sense of disconnection, which led to students not feeling fully um, human. The Office of Religious and Spiritual Life encourages students to host their own campfires with friends and peers. As the office puts it, there's something, quote, elemental about it. Campfires at USC emphasize that gathering around a fire has been an influential part of human connection since the beginning of human history. And yet, they are still as powerful and as effective in fostering human connection today. I'm Simran Sandhu, reporting for The Daily Trojan. The Office of Religious and Spiritual Life also hosts monthly events called What Matters to Me and Why, where notable speakers are brought in to discuss their experiences with spirituality and meaning. Daily Trojan's Nayeli Ayala reports. A college campus can be a lonely place, but the Office of Religious and Spiritual Life would like to change that. One of many ways they are attempting to combat loneliness is through a monthly speaker series. What Matters to Me and Why is a monthly talk and discussion featuring USC faculty and administrators. It's a series that encourages reflection about values, beliefs, and motivation in the lives of those who help shape our university. That's Vanessa Gomez-Brake, Associative Dean of the Office of Religious and Spiritual Life. She provides oversight for all spiritual activity on campus. Her series, What Matters to Me and Why, strives to create an open door towards acceptance and community. I know everyone jokes about, oh, the Trojan family. Like, it, sometimes it's really hard to feel like a family on a campus this big. But when we're in the Ground Zero Cafe and we're hearing this real-life story um, and students get to ask the questions that they do of the faculty members, there is a sense of connection there, and that's what I want to facilitate. 
Vanessa also describes how students, faculty, and staff can participate and interact with the program. We have a nomination form on our website and we welcome nominations from anyone in the Trojan family and what we want is for students to nominate the faculty or staff members that they want to hear from, uh, recognizing that um, even if you go to office hours and so forth, um, your faculty may not want to engage very personal questions and so forth. So in this particular format, we bring them into the Ground Zero Cafe. Um, we let them present um, their answer to this question in a 20 to 30 minute presentation, but then it's, you know, 10 to 20 minutes of a Q&A. In light of recent events, USC and the Office of Religious and Spiritual Life want to create a safe space where students can create strong relationships. We know um, for a fact science has told us that um, when people get to the end of their lives, they're not regretting that, um, you know, that they didn't work enough or that they, you know, didn't get um, whatever celebrity status or so forth, what they regret is that they didn't spend more time with their family and their friends. So if we can remember that um, as individuals um, and also prioritize that in our lives, then that is going to very much improve our mental health and our overall um, well-being. What matters to me and why is a good getaway for students, Vanessa says. Sometimes just relaxing and conversing with others is enough to take someone's mind off an assignment. Students around campus are encouraged to find support systems. That's something that, that's kind of great is that it's this sort of common question, you know, what matters? I think it's a question for students who anybody might be listening, it's a question worth asking yourself, especially if you are a college student, you're probably taking a bunch of different classes, even in a class like the ones I teach, you know, what matters to you? Are you there primarily to get a grade? Is it to learn something? Is it to make friends? That's Associate Professor in Writing, Michael Bunn, who spoke about his experience with sexual assault at one of the What Matters to Me and Why talks. What I would definitely say is I don't think that this is sufficient on its own. You know, I don't think any one thing is sufficient on its own. I know from talking with students personally and from reading their writing, sometimes writing with these things, that there is a lot of um, anxiety. But I do think that a program like this at very least might help people put some things in perspective, right? To hear someone else's perspective and maybe to hear someone struggle with something similar. You know, I'd like to think that my talk while I was talking about sexual assault might have been productive or of use to the people who came to hear that. Oftentimes, hearing someone speak about what matters to them can give insights into new perspectives. What Matters to Me and Why attempts to give students a way to interact with professors in a non-professional setting and get to know who they actually are outside of the classroom. Here's Jordan Colbert, Assistive Technology Specialist in the Disability Services and Programs. In my opinion, what matters to me and why makes the staff and the faculty here human to the students. In many cases, we're just figureheads who are out here either doing research, working our jobs to support students, whether they may believe that's supportive because it's our job or it's we're supportive people, but it really does bring out the humanity in the person that you're working with, the person that's here educating you and the people that are here in the community. What Matters to Me and Why hosts their talks monthly at Ground Zero Performance Cafe at USC. I'm Nyalia Yala reporting for Daily Trojan. These two programs, along with most of the meditation and mindfulness groups, are secular, 
a choice the Office of Religious and Spiritual Life made to remain open to all students, even those wary of organized faith. To get an idea of why these secular wellness-directed programs exist at all, I spoke to Dean of Religious Life Varun Soni and asked him how he came to orient his office in this direction. The first five or six years I was here, my conversations with students were pretty inspiring. Uh, and then about five or six years ago, they became pretty depressing. Uh, they used to be conversations about meaning, and now they're conversations about meaninglessness. They used to be conversations about hope, and now we talk a lot about hopelessness. And that really concerned me. At first, I thought it was just me, that I'd been here long enough so that students in crisis were finding their way to me in a way that they weren't previously. But as I looked at the data and as I talked to people around the country, I realized that this was happening across the country. And I began to understand that we needed to be uh, explicitly a well-being resource on campus, not just a religious and spiritual one. Even though I think they're all connected, we needed to think of ourselves in that way, too. So about five or six years ago, um, I started training my counselors every year in best practices for uh, identifying students in crisis. We've brought in the counseling center to our chaplains group. So every time the chaplains meet, there's a counselor there. So referrals can happen between counselors and chaplains. And what we have found is that when a student is in crisis, that whole student is in crisis, not just part of the student, but the whole student. That means that the spiritual side, the emotional side, the psychological side, sometimes the academic side or the physical side of that student is in crisis. And so if we're really going to support students who are in crisis, we have to think about a holistic structure to support the whole student. And that's why... Um, I began to uh, work really closely with our chaplains to make sure they knew that they could still work with students, but those students could also at the same time be working with counselors, could also at the same time be working with academic advisors. We can do all this work confidentially, but we can build a holistic support structure that acknowledges and honors the different parts of the students that are in crisis, right? What was really interesting is that at some point, Counseling Center also started referring students back to us uh, because they would see students often where the language of religion would emerge in a particular way where they could refer them back to us and we could also work with those students. So I would say over the last five or six years, Counseling Center and the Office of Religious Life have developed a really wonderful working relationship. And I imagine that this relationship doesn't exist in any other school in the way it does here, where we are partners in supporting students in crisis, um, even if we have approaches that are different. But that's the downstream work, right? That's when students are in crisis and we triage that. We see those sure. numbers getting bigger every year. And we realize that if we're just operating downstream, then we're missing the opportunity. The opportunity, I think, is to think upstream about what we can do to help students so they're not in crisis to begin with. Um, what do we do to stop the flow or mitigate it or empower students to be proactive in their own well-being? Uh, that's what I've been thinking a lot about, too, in religious and spiritual life. I think that part of the crisis that students face today is a crisis of meaning and purpose, is a crisis of human connection, and is a crisis of thinking of a world bigger than themselves. Traditionally, religion used to be the place where all those things happened. Religion historically has been the place where people have community, have meaning and purpose, think about themselves as part of a larger whole, have an ethical worldview, have something to look forward to, have ritual and mythology in a way that makes sense of their world. Sure. But we're in a point now where half of our students are not formally religious, right? And so I've been thinking about what does a secular version of that look like? How do we engage students in meaning and purpose, even if they're not religious? Because what it means to be human is to think about meaning and purpose, not what it means to be religious. 
I tell students all the time, it's fine if you want to walk away from your faith, and it's fine if you want to walk away from God, but don't walk away from meaning, purpose, service, joy, gratitude, community. Uh, Those are the things that make you human. You don't need God or religion for any of those things. You can find them through sports. You can find them through service. You can find it through artistic expression, right? But don't walk away from those things. And so now in the Office of Religion and Spiritual Life, we're really thinking about what can we do upstream, whether it's mindfulness or just all these different student groups that bring people together in a type of tribe. We've started a, a, a belonging program. We appointed a director of belonging. We're teaching class, classes on healthy relationships. We're teaching classes on sleep. We're doing community teas. We're doing dream analysis groups. We have these campfire conversations about meaning and purpose. We're doing everything we can in order to bring students together in a way that allows them to feel connected to each other and to have conversations about what it means to be human. And my hope is that in doing that, in creating a secular a secular structure of meaning-making for students who might not have that, then we empower students also in their own well-being so that we can start to mitigate the flow of crisis downstream. And I'm wondering what effect uh, you find the spiritual approach has on students who, who might be struggling, who might be facing these issues. You said um, that Engelman will sometimes, or the Student Health Center will yeah. sometimes refer students back to yeah. you. Where do you find the spiritual route to be successful? Yeah, thank you. So I think you hit the right word. It's spiritual. Um, two-thirds of our students say they're more spiritual than religious, right? Uh-huh. So I think most students will feel as though they have a spiritual life. Uh, this year, the Office of Religious Life was renamed the Office of Religious and Spiritual Life for this very reason. We didn't want to alienate students by the word religion. We wanted them to know that this is a community for all people. I think that where we find some efficacy in spirituality is in the big questions. You know, when you're at a research university like this, you're always graded on the right answers. Students are always trying to find the right answers, but who's asking the right questions? And what are the right questions? Mm -hmm. For me, the right questions are the questions that make us human and connect us with everyone who's ever lived. The existential questions. Who am I? What does my life mean? How do I find uh, value, joy, gratitude? What role do I want to play in this world? What matters to me? Why does it matter to me? Those are questions that don't have obvious answers. And even if they're obvious now, those answers might change. The answers might change, but the questions endure, right? I want students to live and breathe and wrestle with these questions, even if they don't have their their answers. And I think just giving students permission to think about these questions can be helpful in their own journey of self-discovery and empowerment. I have found, uh, and I've written about this, that every year I see more and more lonely students on campus. It seems really strange to me that in the age of connection, we have a disconnected population, that in the age where everyone has got friends online, very few people seem to have friends offline, and that breaks my heart. Right, so I've heard you speak a few other times. I've heard you bring up loneliness a lot, and I'm wondering how the Office of well, now the Office yeah. of Religious and Spiritual yeah. Life approaches this yeah. and, and what resources they have specifically to combat loneliness. Totally. So I'm not a research scientist on loneliness, but um, and I'm not a rocket scientist in terms of my intellectual capabilities. So I, I have a pretty simplistic approach here. My sense is that if people are lonely, then a remedy is to bring them together mm-hmm. at, with other people in community. And so uh, that's 
basically the work we do in the Office of Religious and Spiritual Life through 90 different student groups. 15,000 students will participate in one of our group activities. In doing so, they'll be in a community with other people, oftentimes asking questions that they might not ask elsewhere in a way that allows them to be vulnerable. But we also just appointed Kat Moore as our Director of Belonging. She's teaching two classes this year. One's called Click and one's called Stoke. They're both uh, free and open to all students, not for credit, not for grade. They're both oriented around healthy and meaningful relationships. And what's really cool is that I thought it would be like the lonely kids taking this class. And uh, we did see that, but we also met a lot of student leaders who see loneliness on campus and want to be trained as ambassadors to help the other students. So there is a remarkable sense of self-awareness that I have never seen with previous generations, not Gen X, not Gen Y, but Gen Z has this self-awareness and empathy for each other that I think where students really want to be part of that solution, and we saw that with the work we were doing with Kat Moore. For me, I'm just operating under the assumption that a remedy for loneliness is to be in a community with people, and I'm just trying to build those intimate environments for students to get to know each other in a way that makes the campus feel smaller. Because at the end of the day, we're a city within a city. And sometimes the more people that are around you, the lonelier you actually feel, you know, not less lonely. And at USC when there's tens of thousands of students, it could have that effect of making you feel more lonely, not less. Yeah, I'd actually like to turn now, um, I imagine you're a little bit exhausted talking about this, but to the string of deaths that have occurred on campus recently, um, I'm wondering, first off, just what has been your response to it as, as the Dean of Religious Life at this university? It's been devastating. It's been the hardest semester, most traumatic semester of my career. Um, I've seen a lot of pain. There's a lot of pain on our campus. Um, I've met a lot of broken parents. I've been grieving with a lot of students. Um, I've, I've been at too many memorials. Um, the reality though, is that with 50,000 students on our campus, we are gonna lose students, and we lose students every year. And it's not like we haven't lost students before. Um, But the way it all went down this semester, uh, in terms of the quantity, of the number of students who were impacted, and also in terms of the fact that um, when when a death feels preventable in some way or another, even if it's not, but when it feels that way, there's a different kind of emotional reaction on campus too Mm -hmm. that also involves guilt and anger and fear, not just grief. And so because of that, this has also felt like the impact has been harder. And is that changing your approach at all as far as the Dean of Religious Life here? Is, is that changing how you, uh, the office is going to operate at all? It has to. It has to. I mean, uh, we have to have a sense of urgency now. And it can't just be someone is responsible for this. It has to be that everyone is responsible for this. When we're talking about well-being, when we're talking about flourishing, when we're talking about thriving, it has to be a shared responsibility. We all have to be a part of it. Once it becomes someone's responsibility in some ways, uh, I think we've lost the opportunity. What I'm trying to do now is think about what does culture change actually mean? Not just how do we build wellness resources, but how do we build a wellness culture? I think that's a much harder um, shift, but that's the kind of 
urgency and all hands on deck approach that we need where we all feel invested in building a culture where we look after each other and take care of each other. So going off of that then, like where do you see the office of religious life or where do you envision it? Like affecting students? Like, do you, do you see it more as something that, that can affect, I think the word you used earlier was like upstream or do you envision, um, the office of religious life intervening there? Or do you envision it intervening much more downstream? I think we have to be in every part of the stream now. Um, I think there are things we do that are upstream, but I also, as a chaplain, meet a lot of students who are in crisis. And some students run to religion because they're running to something, and some students run to religion because they're running away from something. And so we do draw students who are in crisis, who are looking for answers in some way or another. And so I think just being in this role since day one, I've seen that. I've seen that students who come to religion sometimes are coming because they're desperate for something, connection or answers or meaning or something because they are in crisis. And so um, I, I know that we're getting students who are in different parts of the stream in their own journey. And as chaplains, we want to be there for students wherever they are in their own journey. And where have you seen positive growth in that aspect? Like where have you seen um, students enter the Office of Religious Life and get get some real guidance and help? Well, it happens all the time through our different groups, right? So the Catholic Center, we have 10,000 Catholic students here and 800 right. will go through mass every week through their different services. We have 1,000 mm -hmm. students that will show up for a Shabbat service at Chabad uh, on their big Shabbat services. Um, Hillel has hundreds of students going through for the high holidays, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So in all the different groups, uh, if you were to talk to them, the student leaders, the chaplains, the religious directors, the staff mm -hmm. of those organizations, you would see stories of personal transformation uh, throughout. Uh, in terms of the Office of Religious Life work that's separate from the religious groups, uh, I think our biggest um, sort of success story has been the Mindful USC program, which I launched when I was a few years ago as Dean of Religious Life. Uh, we're now training 7,000 Trojans a year in mindfulness practice, 1,500 in classes that happen on campus. It's free, it's open to students, faculty, and staff, and, um, and it's upstream. And um, so, could you just explain briefly what yeah. that means, the so, Mindful at USC totally. program? So, if people go to mindful.usc.edu, they'll find a program called Mindful USC. And essentially, what we're doing is we're training and offering instruction in mindfulness practice for students, faculty, and staff for free. What is mindfulness practice? Some people might see it as meditation that is uh, sort of non-judgmental present moment awareness. So uh, how can we offer students some techniques where when they're overwhelmed, they can mitigate the stress and pressure in their own life? They're proactive. Well, mindfulness has always been a spiritual technique, and now people see it as a scientific technique because over the last 20 years, so much research has been done that's peer-reviewed that situates mindfulness as an effective remedy for insomnia, for depression, for substance abuse, and also right. on the upstream side for workplace happiness, for emotional intelligence, for focus, et cetera. And so um, we want to equip students with certain tools and mindfulness has evolved in a way where we can offer it in a secular, scientific context with secular scientific language. Uh, and then I'd like to transition briefly. So this is the third podcast that I'm doing kind of about mental health or related to mental health. Yeah. The, the main question I keep on having is that like, every time we end up talking about this, we talk about how many resources uh, USC has yeah. and how many uh, options there are for students who are struggling. And yet, I, I still find that there's a lot of um, anger and 
feelings of failure from students about the university yeah. and about USC. People feel people don't feel like there's a lot of support here, even when ostensibly there is. Yeah. Can you talk about how that how that feels as, as someone who's an advocate for students at sure. USC? Well, um, I never want to hear that students feel as though they don't have the support they need. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of people who work really hard uh, to make sure students do. Uh, that's why we do this work, quite frankly, because we care for students. It wouldn't make sense if we didn't. Not financially, not the work-life balance, none of it would make sense if you don't. You can't fake it, right? You have to have a real love for students to do this work. So uh, everyone on this campus does have a real love, uh, whether they're in the counseling center and chaplain's office or in the provost's office or student affairs. And um, I work very closely with them. So it, it hurts all of us when we hear that students don't feel supported. In terms, I, I don't oversee the counseling center, but uh, I do think it's a challenge across the country. A few years ago, we had one uh, counselor for every 1,800 students. Now we have one counselor for every 1,100 students. We've hired, we went from 25 to 45 in two or three years, which is extraordinary for a university of this size to move that quickly. Yale University has one counselor for every 450 students. That's the lowest ratio I've seen in the country. Mm -hmm. Uh, And their students complain that they can't see counselors. So I don't know what the solution is in in how do you hire enough counselors to keep up with the fact that the demand is escalating at such a great at such an alarming rate. Quite mm-hmm. frankly, no university in the country can hire enough counselors to keep up with the demand. You will not find a university in the country where students say we are able to access healthcare when we need it, or not healthcare, but access counseling services when we need it. So I think this is not just a USC issue. I think it's a national issue, but it's it's exacerbated by the fact that we have 50,000 students. So everything is difficult at USC because of the scale. Well, regardless of what it is, it's because of the scale. So I, I, I think that's a challenge, and that's why I'm trying to focus upstream. Um, but right. I do think there's some myths out there. Uh, you can go to the counseling center and be seen immediately if you walk in. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't know if students are aware of that, but I, I hope they are. Uh, you can always see a chaplain or me or my associate deans anytime. That doesn't go off your insurance. You can see us as many times as you'd like. We're confidential too. And we're here. Um, and so uh, I know a lot of students do see us, but probably a lot of students don't see the Office of Religious or Spiritual Life as that kind of resource. And and I've been trying to change that narrative. Um, and then there's, that, there's another narrative out there. This is a tough one to talk about, um, that if we'd had more counselors or what have you, maybe we'd have less tragedy. Um, and uh, I don't know if that's true, quite frankly. I think those are two different arguments. I think the idea that you have to have more counselors or better access is is one idea. Um, but uh, the fact, to, but to think that we wouldn't have had as tough of a semester if we did, I don't think is accurate because what's hard for to convey to students is a lot of times students are in care already. They're in whatever, rehab, they're, they're, they've got everything we want for them. They're in a fraternity or they have a faith tradition, they have a good home environment or sorority or whatever. You have, they have all the protective factors in their life. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, that, doesn't mean it's not gonna, that doesn't mean we can always get to the outcome we want. And the reality is people have some degree of, if we think we can do everything for everyone, we're not giving them autonomy or free will too, and people have that. And so um, so that, I think, is also part of the narrative that if we had done this, we could have avoided that. Right. Um, we'll never know that. Um, but uh, but so I think that's, that's, that's where some of the anger comes in. Like I said, a lot of anger, there is a lot of anger 
when you think you can have done something. And then when you think you could have done something, you start looking at, well, I could have done this or that, or, you know, you should have done this or that, but that doesn't mean it would have ended up in a different outcome. You know, So that's a tough one to even think about or talk about. That being said, we have to just get better every year. I'm an incrementalist now. I want to incrementally get better. That's what we have to do. And if we're hiring more counselors every year, and if we're building more resources every year, then we are getting better year by year. Um, and I just don't want to see us not get better year by year. You know, if, if, a, if any university or college says we're done with diversity or well-being, we've figured it out, like I would be terrified of going to that place because that is the aspiration. We can always get better. And uh, my goal is just to keep getting better. And then just finishing up, I just wanted to uh, take us back a little bit to when you were hired in 2008. Yep. Um, you know, since then, a lot has changed uh, uh, both in the broader culture yeah. and at USC yeah. in those 11 years. So yeah. I'm just wondering, like, how have you seen the the Office of Religious Life and the needs of students change yeah. since you got here? That's right. So um, that's a good question. What's changed in the last 12 years? Uh, a lot's changed. Um, I see the Office of Religious Life as every year being more explicitly a wellness resource. I, I, I didn't see that when I first came here. At first, it was like a, a resource for community service or for community organizing or for student groups or for, you know, holy day celebration or for ritual life or liturgy or worship or Bible study. or Now I see it as a support resource for students because we have a campus where 70% of our students are struggling with anxiety, right? Mm -hmm. That's a big number when you talk about 50,000 students. So uh, those, so I think that's part of the shift that I've seen that we're doing a lot more work trying to support and empower students in proactive ways than in sort of just building a hub for students to come like an incubator of spiritual ideas. That was a luxury that we had in, in sure. for a few years. And now we're like on the front line of these challenges too. How do you think that other universities and other offices of religious life can, can learn from USC or yeah. look to the things that, that you guys are doing here? Yeah. Uh, in really changing the definition of what a office of religious life means. Totally. First thing they can do is not orient their office around God, but around meaning. If 48% of incoming students are not formally affiliated with religion and you're oriented around God, are you really going to be a university resource? I don't think so. Um, so I would say that's the first thing is to really be broad in the way you approach students. Um, the second thing is to develop those relationships with the Counseling Center. There's been a long and dark history of religion and psychology in this country. There's been a lot of distrust, and uh, we're finally at a point where we can, I think, start working together in ways that we couldn't have even 10 or 20 years ago, and certainly not 50 or 60 years ago. So uh, now is the time for uh, religious spiritualists and scientists to get together and work on issues together. If we can't do that at a research university, when can we do it? And the last thing I would say is for, um, for, and this is what we try to do, is for religious life professionals to think about secular approaches for supporting students, with whether it be mindfulness or discussion groups or, well, like I said, dream analysis groups or, you know, whatever it is, um, you know, communities to bring students together without any particular faith agenda, you know, to just bring them together. Uh, I think those are things that um, that would really help position those offices as wellness resources. And to continue to do the things that offices of religious life actually do really well, 
what they do really well is interfaith work, community service, intimate group meetings, a sense of meaning and purpose, um, pastoral care. Those are really important. Mm-hmm. And those are also part of well-being. And so not to stop doing those things, but to just expand the portfolio of work. That's Dean of Religious Life at USC, Varun Sony. And that's it for this week on General Education. Please like and subscribe to hear more USC news every Wednesday. And don't forget to check out our sports podcast, Talkin' Troy, and our lifestyle show, Rhythm and News. General Education is produced by me, Sean Flannelly, along with Natalie Bettendorf, Eileen Toe, Kate Sequeira, and Tomas Mier. Special thanks to Nayeli Ayala, Simran Santu, and Emmett Fuchs for contributing reports. 